The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Here we are again today. More green on the screen. What else is new? This has been a fantastic year for risk assets, whether you're looking at equities, investment grade, high yield, uh, even municipal bonds having a fantastic performance this year. The question obviously now turns to 2020. What do we do? Marvin Lowe, our good friend, senior global macro strategist for State Street, uh, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Marvin, I guess the question is for a lot of investors is even if I look at the market's performance in 2019 versus, say, the peak in September last year, Yep. Forget about the 28% return in 2019 because <laughs> we had that big swoon in December. Mm -hmm. I'm still up double digits uh, yep. from that peak to peak. What do I do in 2020? Do I pull some risk off the table or do I just kind of keep everything in the game? You know what? Um, I think the animal spirits are pretty strong. Um, you know, I, I think what we've seen is that um, our worst fears about growth um, certainly didn't come to fruition. And if anything, we're entering 2020 with a little bit more clarity than we had in the middle of the year. So um, I, I think I think um, steady as she goes is is a decent way to look at the start of 2020 at this point. I, I don't see much to shake that apple cart um, at this point. Still a lot of risk out there, but we've uh, really taken a lot of the biggest concerns off the table. I think one of the biggest issues, as you and I were talking before the, this segment, that uh, really kind of a year ago today, what was uh, spooking the market were a number of factors, but probably first and foremost was the Fed, and it was in a you know hiking mode here. What is your expectation for the Fed here uh, as we go through 2020? Yeah, you know what, um, I, and I think that I think kind of the outlook for the Fed as well as kind of the central bank contingent, if you will, um, is supportive of this market. Ultimately, it's asymmetric. Um, they have, for the most part, uh, set a pretty high bar in terms of cutting um, additionally, but they said that they're certainly watching everything. But the bar, I think, is even higher for hiking. Um, and I think that not only is true for the Fed, but it's true for a lot of the central banks around the world, which gives investors you know, a little bit of a, a tailwind when you don't have to worry about the risk um, clearly that we saw at the end of 2018 from an overly aggressive hiking cycle. Okay, so we have global central banks uh, generally in an easing mode. Uh, geez, we got negative interest rates, quite frankly, in, in a number of the big markets around the world. What asset classes should I be thinking about now, given that I am 10 or 11 years into this economic cycle? Do I equities, investment grade, high yield, emerging markets? How do I think about it? Yeah, you know, so so I think interest rates are going to remain low. Um, you know, I'm not in the camp that we're going to all of a sudden reinflate to a three to 4% tenure in the US. So if we kind of are looking at rates somewhere around here, I think the reach for yield still um, is strong. Uh, there is a lot of cash on the sidelines. So I think that that makes its way back into risk assets. Equities, um, despite valuations, um, 
continue to, to look attractive. But I also even like credit in this in this market. I think you have to reach for it. Um, I don't think that it's as, you know, certainly the, a lot of the, the low-hanging fruit has been picked this year. Um, but, you know, people, uh, demographics are still going to need that income. So that leads me to, um, to high yield uh, to a certain degree. And it does lead me to EM, particularly if we see a more stable environment when it comes to the FX market. All right, well, let's start with kind of the riskier side of the credit markets, high yield leverage loans. There's been some concern that, you know, maybe credit quality starting to get a little tepid or certainly, let's just start with valuation. The high yields had a great run yeah. here. The yields have tightened. Do you have to be really selective in high yield? Are there certain sectors you have to focus on? Or can you just kind of have a ladder across high yield? Yeah, no, I, I think you have to be more selective this year and 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 or next year I should say. But even this year, you needed to be selective. Triple uh, C certainly underperformed. The leverage loans certainly underperformed. Uh, so there were recession risk um, that were building, and I think that remains out there. Given that we're like you said, we're 11 years um, into this expansion. Um, but having said that, the fact that we're pushing recession concerns, you know, a little bit in the future. Again, an active central bank kind of keeps those recession concerns uh, at bay you could get into that single B category and start picking your way around it um, because it would take a recession um, to really push that into kind of the more bankruptcy bankruptcy type concern. You certainly can get um, spread widening, but uh, in terms of cutting coupons at about 5%, yep. you know, it's, it sounds pretty good. It does. I, th I think a lot of people would uh, take that this year. How about emerging markets? That's an area that's chronically underperformed. And uh, I'm wondering in a scenario where maybe we do get some phase one kind of trade deal, tensions kind of pull back a little bit in terms of global trade. Can EM finally perform in 2020? Um, EM, EM as, as an asset class is always uh, tricky because it encompasses so much. Yep. Um, I think by definition, you have to be choosy. You have to kind of know what the underlying aspects of um, each one of those countries' economies are. But having said that, I do think, again, going back to this lower interest rate environment, potentially less volatility will put you into certain um, EM carry trades where, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess the risk of kind of going into EM unhedged is, is certainly well known. But if you don't have volatility and, you're, and you are able to um, clip those local currency coupons, uh, it's something that you should think about. Real quickly, trade deal, it seems like we're moving towards a phase one type of deal. How important is that to the market? Um, I don't think it's that important because I think most of it's priced in already. Uh, I think that ultimately what um, is important for the data is if it gets companies comfortable in terms of starting to reinvest. Uh, you know, I think that uh, 2019 was a challenge given how massive the crosswinds around trade were. If we actually get to a point where some of the tensions um, reduce and we move more towards an election kind of environment where we don't have as many headlines, businesses um, very well could start to invest in a way that they haven't. And then that just provides additional tailwind to what seems to be a fairly strong consumer. Hey, Marvin, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you coming in here. Marvin Lowe, Senior Global Macro Strategist for State Street based in Boston, but joining us here in his Bloomberg uh, 1130 studio with his faithful sidekick as well, sitting in here in the studio for it. We appreciate you, Marvin, coming in with your thoughts. Well, it has been a fantastic year for risk assets. And you take a one, take a look at one of the riskier stocks out there, or one of the more volatile stocks out there, Tesla. It's really an interesting tape. Uh, the stock is up 30% year to date, but when you take a look from its June low, it's up 140%. There was a time back in June where it looked like the bears were finally 
getting their due, but they've been punished since then. Again, a stock up 140% off that June low. To get a sense of what comes next, we welcome our good friend Dan Ives. He's a managing director, uh, equity research for Wedbush Securities. He's also a Penn State Nittany Lion uh, alumnus. We will talk about the Cotton Bowl coming up, certainly. But Dan, let's start with Tesla. What's your make here of this company, this stock? It has been all over the map in 2019. Yeah, I mean, look, there were some dark days earlier this year, and it really came down to demand in the U.S. that was starting to wane. And and you got to give Musk and Tesla credit. I mean, you've seen a rebound in Europe. The China growth story now looks to be alive and well with Giga 3. And then most importantly, profitability. And that sort of combination has caused not just a massive short squeeze, but I think right now starting to maybe see a real turnaround going to 2020. All right, so let's start with the production side first. That's always been a concern here. Yes, it's a great technology. It's a great car. Um, but can they ever build it at scale on a profitable basis? Do we have any more color there? Well, I think right now that's why Giga 3 is so important in terms of China because from a production standpoint, that along with Europe could really significantly increase production and actually get them to maybe sustain profitability. And to your point, it's been a one-step-forward, two-step-back story for a number of years now. It feels like maybe they're starting to finally turn the corner. And that's what you're seeing with the stock. I mean, it's a massive re-rating that's starting to happen because of not just the demand, but the production capacity with Giga for 3 front and center. Do we have a sense of, let's switch to that demand story, because for a while there, just as a layperson watching this stock, I, I never doubted the demand story because it was just, again, such a great car, great technology, so much ahead of everybody else. But then there really was uh, some concern about you know, what's really the demand for electric cars out there. What's your sense of kind of the, the market demand for this Tesla product? Yeah, I mean, look, right now, EV, 2% overall automobile sold. And we think that could be 7% in the next four to five years. You know, a lot of strong demand for Model 3, especially on the price points. So if you look at SNX, those are higher-end price points. Model 3 demand looks strong. Look, right now, it looks like sustainably four to 450,000 units. It might be the line in the sand going forward in terms of what Tesla can see in terms of demand. But now it's going global, and that's the key. Europe and China, that's key of the growth story. I'm actually a little bit surprised, again, as a layperson, not seeing a more concerted effort in the EV market from uh, some of the existing uh, auto manufacturers. Are you surprised that we haven't seen a bigger production and marketing push into this space? Yeah, I think it's sort of been a toe in the water. I mean, you've seen, obviously, BMW and Porsche and, and GM and Ford go after the market, but right now it's really been Tesla's where they've sort of built a big moat. I think a lot of it comes down to price points and overall demand. And, and I think you're going to start to see that stepped up in terms of the EV push over the coming years that goes global. But I think it has been slower than expected. And I think that's something where you'll see a lot more competition going for this area of the market where I think, you know, ultimately EV sales probably double over the next three to four years. Interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, the, is the product advancing in terms of quality, in terms of you know, like maybe, you know, distance and so on and so forth? Is the reliability uh, improving? Because, again, we know the technology is really cool. Yeah, but, but it really comes down to with stable gas prices, 
that's ultimately actually been a negative, really, for right. EV sales. And, and I think that's something where Tesla's obviously been the one that's really benefited from overall EV. And if you look in the U.S., EV has trailed Europe and others. Now the big, well, a lot of the big growth's going to be China. That's why Tesla's been so big on the Giga 3 build out there, which is their factory in Shanghai, as well as overall demand in China. And that's how you either have a $550, $600 stock or a 2 to 250 And so much of that is going to be relying on the China growth story. All right, Dan, let's switch gears. Penn State football going up against the University of Memphis in the Cotton Bowl Friday night. You're a proud PSU alumnus. What's your call there? Yeah, I think Penn State by 10. I, I, I think fundamentally, uh, you know, this continues to be one that uh, it's going to be all Penn State. And just given that offense that they have, it's going to be tough for Memphis to stay with them. Excellent. I'm a, I'm not an alum, I, but I just I write tuition checks to Penn State, so I've become a de facto fan. Um, so I will be rooting for Penn State as well. Dan Ives, thanks so much for joining us. Dan's a managing director, equity research uh, at Wedbush Securities. Talking to us about uh, Tesla, he's got a hold on the stock, but it sounds like he's getting uh, a little bit uh, more uh, upbeat about the story. And as as Dan was mentioning, the big uh, probably the next big catalyst for the stock, one way or the other, uh, is China. Can they produce cars in China profitably? What is the demand uh, for the Tesla product in China. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, I eat out a lot, full disclosure, a lot of restaurants. Um, I always think that every time I go, the restaurants seem pretty packed to me. But our next guest, Mike Halen, senior restaurant analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He says 2020 might be a tough year for restaurants. So what's your thoughts about the restaurant business right now, Mike? What are you seeing out there in the marketplace? Uh, well, this has been a pretty good year, you know, um, in general. So, so the... Um you know, fast food chains have done pretty well. Uh, most of it, though, has been done through price increases. And we, those, we know those are, you know, unsustainable because as, as you continue to raise prices, eventually the, the lower income and middle income consumers are going to start to pull back a little bit, maybe shop a little bit more at the grocery store. Um, the other thing is casual dining. So casual dining had a tough uh, 2019, and we think that's going to continue in 2020. They're seeing a lot of competition from independent chains, fast casual chains, grocery stores that are picking up their their uh, in-store uh, food experience, whether it's grab and grow, um, you know, hot food, pick up, uh, you name it. So uh, a lot of competition there, um, you know, and then also we're going to see uh, breakfast wars, breakfast fast food. So who's price coming wars. in now with somebody's coming in with a breakfast? Yeah. Wendy's is coming in. So with they breakfast. weren't in breakfast before they were not. They failed wow. three times prior. So why is, is this what's going to be different this time? So. It's interesting. I think part of the problem has been they've just been in locations that are better for uh, lunch and dinner, right? They're on your drive home when you're driving home after work, 
right? But aren't they always in the same or similar spot than McDonald's or Burger King? Uh, typically, but sometimes on the opposite side of the street, which when you have to make a U-turn on you know, <laughs> Route right? 46 East <laughs> oh, yeah. and then you know make another U-turn to, to make your way towards Manhattan, hour, right? and that's, that's, a, that's a big change. So we think that's part of the reason why it's failed in the past. I, management talks about how they had a whole lot of um, items on the menu before and it was just hard to execute uh, and it caused you know it caused them to, to need a lot of labor in the restaurant so now they're doing a more limited menu uh, it's only going to be available through the drive-through there's only going to be two or three employees in the store so uh, labor costs aren't going to skyrocket so they think for all those reasons it's going to work this time and they're doing a national launch in January uh, but everyone knows this you know 2019 yep. was a big year for Burger King they said you know breakfast is only 15 percent of our sales McDonald's is 25% we want to close that gap so they've been uh, improving their offerings and well that's been a big big positive for the McDonald's story over the last several years is this breakfast menu all day all, all day breakfast for sure and that's been a positive right a in very, terms of traffic a very big positive for them and then they're also rolling out chicken in January so <laughs> you know everybody's gonna be f fighting very fiercely uh, in January for breakfast share in January is when the, the advertisements and, and the value offerings are at their peak because most people come out of the new year saying, yep. you know, a new me, I'm going right. to the gym, I'm going to eat healthier, <laughs> I'm not going to eat at McDonald's and Wendy's. So, you know, discounting is very aggressive to begin with, and we expect some more uh, aggressive discounting to kick off in, in what, what is the whole thing about this whole chicken thing out there with you got Chick-fil-A going against, I don't know, Popeyes? Is, that, is it just kind of like a little marketing fad, or is there actually some segment of the market that's changing well chicken's growing faster than burgers and it has for a while so okay. um you know we've seen it with this huge growth of chick-fil-a over the last decade um but it, it's not just chick-fil-a and chick-fil-a does a great job and they offer a great product but you know it's chains like popeyes popeyes has been growing stores at about a six percent clip now uh since i've been covering the company in around 2012. right uh so yeah chicken's becoming more popular people are eating more chicken and, and less beef so uh, we're seeing it, you know, make its way onto a lot of menus. All right. You mentioned beef. What's the whole scam on this plant-based meats? I just saw, I mean, I see a lot of, you know, network television ads now for from Burger King, the, yeah. you know, the, the whatever it's called, the unbelievable market burger, whatever it is. Is this a fad or is this real? What, do you, what are the companies telling you? Well, we think it's here to stay. Okay. You know, um, right now there's a lot of questions about you know is the trial you know right now we're seeing a huge trial burger king sales were up five percent in the u.s last quarter and a lot of that was people trying the impossible whopper impossible. uh is that yeah the impossible whopper but is that is gonna, mcdonald's have a product uh they're, they're testing one okay. in canada they're called it's called the plt plt yeah, plant lettuce and tomato. so they're a little bit behind which is uncharacteristic for them yeah they've been ahead of the curve on a lot of things over the last few years i think part of the issue with them is just their scale you okay. have 14,000 stores in the united states i don't know if beyond meat or impossible can actually supply 14,000 stores at, at their current how come uh, a bigger the bigger food companies haven't just gotten in there and just satisfy the market if there's well, that demand I well guess. they are they're starting to okay. you know we're seeing the um we're seeing hormel we're seeing uh, nestle has a product that mcdonald's is actually selling already in europe um we're seeing a lot of these large uh, packaged food companies get into this space because it's growing like wildfire you know we're, we're trying to get some real reads on um purchasing and and we have some uh third-party companies kind of looking into some things for us and they're like you know what there's just such um 
trial yep and so many chains are signing on to start selling these things for the first time it's hard to try to parse out what's repeat and what just chains lining up yep. to start selling this product All right, just quickly 30 seconds how the stocks performed and what's your outlook for 2020 for this sector yeah so stocks have performed very well this year uh, like i said it was a, a decent year for fa uh, Did they fast food chains the um no about in line okay about okay. in line um but the the companies are trading at uh, a 40 percent premium on an ev to ebitda basis to the 10 year to the last 10 years wow. in terms of valuation so uh for for an that's industry much that's richer than the market for sure okay. and it's not generating much traffic right now so we have concerns have concerns about 2020. I got it. Okay, so we're rich uh, in the market. Fundamentals may not support that. I kind of get the call there. Mike Kalin, senior a restaurant analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking about the restaurant business, plant-based meat. I don't, you know, I actually, full disclosure, I have not tried it yet. Uh, I must try it at some point so I can have an informed opinion. Taking a look at uh, Brent crude right here, uh, up about 30% year to date to get a sense of kind of what's driving global oil uh, in 2019 and what we can look forward to to 2020. We welcome our good friend, Dr. Ellen Wald. She's a president of Transversal Consulting, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy uh, Center and also a Bloomberg opinion contributor. Uh, so we welcome Dr. Wald. So Ellen, give us a sense, again, Brent up 30% year to date. I guess my question is, you know, kind of what's been driving that and kind of how do you kind of carry that into 2020? Yeah, I think the big driver right now for oil prices, and, and that's, it's really the same thing that's been driving oil prices all year, is demand growth perception. And uh, for most of 2019, the perception that was that demand growth was going too slow. And so that led to uh, a lot of, of volatility we saw in oil prices, but also every time there was something that pushed prices up, that, um, that perception that demand growth was going to decrease pushed it down. And so right now we've got a lot of optimism in terms of demand growth, I think, for the future, uh, for 2020. And a lot of that is being driven by this phase one uh, trade deal by uh, the U.S. and China, which uh, which is very interesting because now that we've, we've got that sentiment baked into the market, baked into oil prices, they've got to get the deal done. And so this is something to really keep a close eye on in the first uh, quarter of 2020, because if something derails that trade deal, then we could really see uh, a lot more volatility in prices. Where do you think oil could pull back to if, in fact, this deal does not get put on paper? I mean, we could we could see it. It, it uh, you know, for WTI certainly back into the 50s, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Brent as well fall a lot if things really fall apart between the U.S. and China, because a lot is riding on this deal. Now, the interesting thing about it, though, is say it does go through uh, and and everything goes as planned, we're not even going to see oil demand pick up immediately because uh, these things take time to kind of trickle through the system. It's really all about the perception that economic growth is going to uh, continue and to grow. So Ellen, give us a sense, that's the kind of the demand equation, again, very much uh, levered to what happens with the global trade agreement between the U.S. and China. Just give us an update on kind of what you're hearing. I know you were in Vienna several weeks ago. Give us your thoughts on kind of how OPEC is viewing the market and maybe OPEC plus Russia. Yeah, so the supply 
side of the equation is is also uh, it's also got some some volatility in it. Uh, this this deal between OPEC and OPEC Plus to cut production even further really hinges right now mostly on Saudi Arabia, which is committed to cutting even more production than it has to. Uh, and so that was uh, supposed to be an incentive to these overproducers, Iraq and Nigeria and Russia in particular, to get in line and uh, and follow the deal and, and cut production. But now we're hearing that uh, Russia is really uh, kind of cooling off on its commitments, uh, and, and Novak in particular is saying, you know, well, we're gonna we're gonna reevaluate in March. We may not, you know, continue these uh, production cuts, keeping in mind that they haven't actually cut production yet. So the supply side of the equation is really hinging on Saudi Arabia and whether Saudi Arabia just decides, hey, we're gonna, you know, take the hit on this one and cut our production. Meanwhile, you've got the shale oil equation, uh, which is really a big question mark going forward. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go. Um, you know, it's I guess for those of us who aren't, we don't live and breathe energy day to day. The one thing we can certainly recognize has been a sea change in the global energy business is the the growth of the U.S. shale production and supply and what that's meant to the global marketplace. Give us a sense of what's going on in the shale patch today and kind of what your expectations are for 2020. It's it's really it's still a very big big question because you've got on one side you've got um, the EIA predicting that uh, the U.S. is going to average over 13 million barrels per day of production in 2020, which is a huge number. I think uh, in November uh, the number was was 12.8 million barrels per day, which it makes the U.S. the largest oil producer in the world. Now on the other hand, you've got kind of the naysayers who are saying, look, there's a lot of issues going on. There's decline. There's well decline. There's financial issues, and we're going to see uh, slowing growth rate, possibly even slowing production in the Permian. And I think that that's really what OPEC is banking on, uh, is that is that things are going to, going to start to slow. But then you've got people saying, look, the shale producers have ways to deal with this. They're drilling longer laterals. We've got more pipelines coming online. And, uh, and you know, they're really very doing very targeted drilling, such that they're drilling only in areas that are really profitable to them. So uh, I think we've, we've kind of got uh, two sides of, of the argument here, and we're just going to have to see what pans out in 2020. Hey, Ellen, before I let you go, I want to talk to you, get your thoughts on Aramco, Saudi Aramco. The stock, uh, as we know, IPO'd on December 11th uh, at 32 uh, uh, Saudi rails, I guess, um, per share. It's now at 35 and change. What is the feedback you've been hearing within the energy circles? I mean, it was this was such a limited deal in terms of, you know, kind of really confined to the uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and some neighboring countries. It didn't really get any real exposure in the West. Is there a sense that we really still don't know what this company's worth? Yeah, I think that there's there's a sense that whatever it's being traded for on the market right now is not necessarily the market value or what, what a real market would, would say the value of the company is. It's very hard to say because, first of all, you've got very low trading volume. I mean, extremely low volume in terms of trading. Uh, Tadawa caps movement at 10% per day, so you're never going to see it move up or down more than 10% for Aramco. But then you've also got a lot of government intervention going on here. And we know that the Saudis do this uh, for other stocks in Tadawa to try to stabilize prices. And so we can assume that there also doing this with Aramco to try to prevent a whole lot of volatility. So right now we're kind of in a 
I'd say in a holding position. They hit their $2 trillion valuation. They've since backed off from that, which I think was something that everyone uh, expected. The real question, I think, is what's going to happen uh, in June? Because in June, that's when the lockup period ends. And uh, it wouldn't be surprising to see more people uh, selling their shares that they bought at the IPO. We'll see more uh, trading volumes starting to happen with Aramco. And that's when we may get a real sense of what this company is actually worth. Uh, Dr. Ellen Wall, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Wall is president of Transversal Consulting. Uh, she's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Sector Center and also a Bloomberg opinion contributor. So we appreciate Dr. Wald coming on. She's our expert when it comes to global energy markets, giving us a sense of supply and demand. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.